right, good morning. Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9, that's where we are. Um, I'm going to try to get right back into here where we were uh, this morning, and then um, if we can uh, get to where I was hoping to today, we'll have just a little bit more looking at that middle section, the kind of the main emphasis of the book of Hebrews, the priesthood of Christ, and how it's superior, of course, to the Old Testament priesthood, the uh, Aaronic priesthood, Levitical system, and everything that went with that. Um, and then maybe for review, maybe we'll have some kind of test or something like that following that. I don't know. But anyway, um, Anyway, Hebrews chapter 9, actually, I think this morning too, just for time's sake, we're not going to read a bunch of verses ahead of time either. Um, if you remember from, this was two weeks ago because I wasn't here last week, um, but we were in chapter 9, and uh, we've already seen that really the first part of chapter, well, let me, let me even back up just a second. Chapter 9, the Kind of the key word focus is sanctuary. Remember, we're talking about Christ's priesthood. There's several words beginning. We used alliteration and beginning with S uh, to describe these. But this in chapter 9, the key word is the sanctuary of Christ's priesthood. In other words, where he carried out his priesthood. And, of course, this is in comparison to the Old Testament sanctuary or the Old Testament tabernacle. Now, specifically, when you look at chapter 9, the emphasis is even, if you want to say, more specifically on that part of the tabernacle that would have been called the holiest place, the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle, not just the first part. Now, uh, these uh, are mentioned here in the first 10 verses of chapter 9, just uh, kind of a brief description, then going into the fact that that tabernacle was never intended to be permanent. Uh, it really couldn't do anything but provide some ceremonial cleansing. Uh, in fact, a key, key verses on this are right there in verses 8, 9, and 10, and let's read those right before we get into verse 11 and following again here. But there in verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was standing. And remember, he's already mentioned that just the high priest one time a year, he's the only one that was allowed to go in there. And of course, there were certain things that had to be done and so on. And there's an emphasis there that he, he was not to go in there without blood and uh uh, and, and the Holy Ghost was making it clear that the way into there, there was, no, there was no access yet. That's the point, all right? That it was all picturing the fact that man was in a predicament and had no direct access to God, and God was allowing man a, you might say, a vicarious access through the priest going in there, the high priest, once a year and doing certain things. Um, and so on. But the Holy Ghost was making clear that wasn't open yet, all right? And then verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. 
they were only for ceremonial cleansing, all right, which stood only in meats and drinks, divers' washings, and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Now, the interesting thing there is, uh, this verse makes it clear that it was always God's intention that there would come a time when all that would change, when things would be made new. The time of Reformation, uh, the, the idea there is a time of renewing. Something new is going to happen so that all of that would change. That's the idea. And then the rest of the chapter elaborates on what that was, which, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ and the priestly work that he did in that true tabernacle in heaven. All right, so we'll jump back into that. Let's have a word of prayer real quick. We'll jump back into uh, this. There's several key points that I really want to stress to you in some of these verses and then uh, part of the chapter we'll go through quickly uh, because it's really just one big emphasis in that part. Uh, and then hopefully again we'll be able to get to chapter 10 today, but um, uh, not into it, but just up to it. Anyway, that's the, that's the goal. So let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, again for this opportunity this morning to look at your word and particularly at this very uh, special, very sacred portion of your word, Hebrews chapter 9. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would, uh, uh, again, help us to have the right understanding of what your word's teaching. And then, of course, obviously there's so many um, uh, benefits uh, of what this is teaching to us and the salvation that uh, is offered through the Lord Jesus Christ and only through him. And Father, it's in his name that we ask you this morning to help us. In his name we pray. Amen. All right, this sanctuary, the, the priestly work of Christ in the sanctuary, you'll notice also, in fact, if you think about this, if we have time, we might go back and read some in the book of Leviticus chapter 16. That's where the, uh, the, the, the rules, if I can put it that way, for the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, that's where they're laid out there, all right? And there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of things that had to be done. Very ritualistic, all right? It had to be done this way, this particular thing, and, and even in some things, it would seem that there was almost repetition of what was done, uh, but every little thing had a purpose, and every little thing pictures, again, what Christ would fulfill uh, one day from that perspective. From our perspective today, it's already done, all right? We're looking back on it. Um, but all of that's important. But when you think about that, with the Day of Atonement and the work that the, the high priest did inside that sanctuary you can very easily see, I would hope, that the, the element of blood was something that was so intricately involved with that, all right? And interestingly enough, I was going to stop and, and pull up something and count it so I don't have the numbers right on the top of my head here for you this morning, but the word blood occurs a number of times in the book of Hebrews. One time, I think I'm right here, I'm going by my memory here, but uh, I think only one time before chapter 9 it occurs, and that's in chapter 2. And then chapter 9, it occurs 12 times, and then a few more times after this in Hebrews. But So in other words, what I'm getting at, the most occurrences of the word blood in the book of Hebrews are in chapter 9, which are dealing with Christ's high priestly work that 
fulfilled the pictures on the Day of Atonement that the priest was carrying out back in Leviticus 16. All right, so if you think about it in that light, it makes a lot of sense of why that's connected that way here in Hebrews chapter 9. All right, so verses 1 through 10 in chapter 9 describe the old tabernacle and, and so on here, and then we get into uh, verses 11 through uh, the end of the chapter, and we see how Christ now uh, and his ministry in that new, the greater, more perfect tabernacle are described for us. Verses 11 and 12, we looked at these verses before, but let me just reiterate them again quickly here. And because these are opening the, the door for what the rest of the chapter is really emphasizing and talking about. All right, Christ, he's arrived. Uh, the time has come is the idea. Now, again, for us, that's past, okay? But in, from the writer of the book of Hebrews, he's stressing the fact that that time has come, Christ has arrived, and he's done his priestly work, all right? But Christ being come, that's, that's the idea of that. He's, he's arrived, he's come, and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, those good things to come were, that's from the perspective of the Old Testament, that what was anticipated that God was going to do, that time of reformation, the time of new things, all right? That was still coming, but now the writer of Hebrews is saying it's come, all right? And he's done this by a greater, more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Now, notice verse 12. This is an extremely important verse. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So notice verse 12, all right, again, is saying Christ arrived, he's completed his uh, high priestly service, which basically is fulfilling what the high priest did back there. And he entered, there's several things emphasized here, he entered one time, he only had to do it one time, and he entered with what? His blood. In fact, the, the way it's worded, he entered by his blood. The idea is that his blood is what gave him, if I can word it this way, the right to come in. All right? The high priest, he was the right man for that job, so to speak, on the Day of Atonement. But he, would, he only was permitted to enter if he brought blood. And it had to be the right blood, the specified blood. It wasn't the blood of Christ, of course, back then. But it had to be the right blood of the right animals that God had said. In fact, actually, if you were to go back and read that, you'll see that he did that twice on that day. He came in once with the blood of a bull or a bullock, a calf, all right? And that was to make atonement for his own sin and for his household. Then... He had come in, sprinkled that blood and so on, burned the incense, sprinkled the blood. Then he had to go back out and another animal was offered and he brought the blood of a goat in that second time and went through the whole thing again. And that was to make atonement for the nation, for the people of Israel. And then he would go back out and then back out in the courtyard. He had to take that blood and sprinkle all the different instruments and so on to make atonement for those things because of the sin of the people, how it had defiled that tabernacle and so on. All right. So, I mean, there was a lot of things that were involved in that, but that was the one day that was this 
special day when all this stuff was done. And what Hebrews 9 is basically telling us is that Christ did this, but he entered with his own blood. And he only did this one time. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter, the whole emphasis is he did this with his own blood in this real sanctuary in heaven, not this man-made picture of a sanctuary, but he did it with his own in that sanctuary in heaven before God, and he did it one time, and that is all that's ever needed. I mean, that's, that's really what this chapter is all about. Now, there's a number of really special things in this chapter, and I think I mentioned the last uh, two weeks ago when we were started looking in this, that if, you know, it's hard to put this in words because, I mean, all the Bible's special, right? But, but when, you, when you think about what's talked about in, in, from verse 11 in, in chapter 9 through really about verse 18 in chapter 10, these are some of the most sacred verses in all the Bible because they're really just talking about what Christ did in giving himself, offering himself, offering his blood, and so on before God. I mean, it, it's, it's an amazing thing. All right, and, and Hebrews presents it in a way that the rest of the Bible really doesn't as far as the New Testament. A very unique look on it. And, uh, and so uh, these, are, these are special verses. All right, So he entered in with his own blood uh, in doing his work. All right, Then verses 13 and 14, uh, just summarizing them, the offering up of his blood is what secured true Atonement. Notice verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctified, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, there's a lot in these verses. I want to take a few moments and, and, and examine particularly verse 14 in a little more depth. But this is one of those, and this is very common in the New Testament, okay, because of the, the language and so on. But there's, there's a, it's easy to miss the main point because there's so many details, all right? I mean, it's a sentence that's real long and has all these modifying statements that go to it, but there is one very basic statement in the whole verse. And that basic statement is the, the blood of Christ uh, will much more, he'll shall purge your conscience from dead works. All right? I mean, that's the, the basic idea, that the blood of Christ shall purge your conscience. And in other words, remember he said that the things that were done in the Old Testament tabernacle could never perfect concerning the conscience forgiveness because they were just ceremonial things. The blood of, a, of an animal really has no effect before God. It's just a picture, right? And the things that were taken care of in that were just ceremonial things. God has always and only always looked at the blood of Christ as the basis for forgiveness of sins for any person, all right? Animals' sacrifices never a basis of forgiveness before God. They were just pictures. In fact, when you get to chapter 10, you'll see the word foreshadow used, all right? They were just shadows, 
pictures, illustrations. I mean, you could use a variety of words, but that's really what it is. Sometimes the word type is used. But they were just teaching tools is what it really amounts to. Just like uh, verse 8 and uh, through 10 there says about the old tabernacle. It was all just teaching tools in reality of trying to you know, present a picture of what Christ would do. And so the blood of Christ, all right, is the key thing. And there is no way that you could put uh, enough uh, positive descriptions on the blood of Christ to do it justice. I mean, <laughs> there's just no vocabulary that does it justice. I mean, it's called the precious blood of Christ. It's the, you know, I mean, the spotless, the without blemish blood. I mean, it, it just... You could, you could go on with endless descriptions and not, not exhaust the, the value of the blood of Christ. And it's interesting that the person and the blood of Christ has probably been the subject of the devil's attack through the centuries more than anything when it comes to false religions, false doctrines, uh, modern versions of the Bible, the you know, verses and things that are changed and omitted. Primarily, they have to do with who Christ is and His blood. That's, that's typically the case. In fact, probably 99% of the time, that's the case. Um, I mean, so it's, it's an attack on Him because it's so important. And it's the, very, it's the very crux of the matter when it comes to salvation. It's Christ and His blood and what He's done in order to be able to, for God to be able to uh, grant forgiveness and uh, to offer salvation, if you want to say. And so Christ has arrived. He's completed that priestly work. He's offered up His blood and secured true atonement. Now, there's a comparison of His blood and the blood of animals in these verses here. Of course, the blood of animals was pres only prescribed by God as pictorial. We've already seen that. That blood was only effective enough to purify fleshly matters. Uh, the proper application of that blood could ceremonially, and only that, uh, offer cleansing. Uh, Christ's blood is effective to purge one's conscience from dead works. It can cleanse our moral consciousness. We talked about that last time before God, and thus enable us to serve God. That's the main point uh, in verse 14, that... His blood, all right, if the blood, that's the question, it's, it's all involved in a, con, a question with a condition and so on here in these verses, but if that blood could do what it did, which wasn't much, but how much more, all right? In other words, Christ's blood shall more so, all right, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, a couple things I want to point out before we move on here, all right? Notice in verse 14, particularly we take verse 12, verse 14 together in this whole context, I believe it presents a picture that, uh, and I'll just word it this way, that, and, and this is difficult because it's one of those things that falls into, uh, we, 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 we can't really rationalize it out, all right, because this is deep stuff and it's beyond our, I believe, human comprehension to really put our fingers around it, so to speak, and explain it all. But the point is, it's what God's Word says, and we accept it, all right? We have to believe it, all right? But Christ, He's eternally God the Son, who became man, 
That's, that in itself is, is not easy to grasp. And there's a lot of false religions that stumble over that very thing and miss the mark because of that. All right? But he's God, always been God, always will be God. I mean, he can't stop being God. He didn't stop being God in order to become man. He's God who also became man at a point in time. He hasn't always been man, but he's man since he became man, all right? But he's God and he's man. And thus, I have no idea what I did. And thus, in that, he, he does things and, and he's unique, okay? And there's things about him that he does and can do that obviously we can't really understand, Okay? So the point is, I, I'll just put it, put it this way, then try to explain it, all right? I believe that what Hebrews, um, we'll just leave that up, we'll get to that here. Hebrews 9 is teaching us is that the man, all right, Jesus, he went to the cross. He had to become a man in order to die, suffered and die. God can't die, okay, he's God, but... He became a man, and he endured, suffered all the things that he did on the cross, right? While he's on the cross as the sacrificial lamb, if you want to say, the sacrifice, at the same time, Christ is in heaven doing this priestly work in that sanctuary in heaven, carrying out what Hebrews is talking about, Um. That is, again, that's not easy to grasp because you're thinking, okay, well, if he's on the cross, how can he be in heaven? Well, I can't necessarily explain that to you other than the fact that that's only he can do that, of course. All right? Um, and we gave some examples of uh, uh, some scripture uh, of other instances to help try to clarify that, I guess you could say. But notice what verse 14 says. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God. All right? Consider that part of this verse. All right? And there's really three, three, three elements of this that I want to talk about here. A who, a when, and a, and a what. All right? Who? All right? Who is it that was offering up in heaven? All right, and there's not dis, there, there's some disagreement here among even Bible believing people on this. Okay, so, um, but but I do believe that this is what Hebrews is teaching. What I'm gonna the conclusion I'm gonna show you here. All right, but there's several possibilities as to this phrase, the eternal spirit here in verse 14. Some believe that this eternal spirit is the idea of the. Uh, the willing spirit that Christ had, all right, so kind of like in the sense of an attitude, okay, his, his mindset that he was willing to do this. And he's been willing to do that since eternity past. All right, that's, that's the angle that, that's emphasized there. That's, that's one idea. The other is some believe, and some good men and so on believe, that this is speaking of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit, while Christ is on the cross, the Holy Spirit is doing this, all right? Um, I don't believe that that's the case for several reasons, all right? I don't think it fits the context, all right? 
Uh, it doesn't fit the doctrinal context of the New Testament, which emphasizes that God the Son was the one that was tasked with procuring salvation and everything that was involved in being able to provide salvation. All right, It was His responsibility, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has a role in salvation, of course, um, but it's not that of being, you know, doing uh, the work of salvation as described with Christ. All right, so I don't think it fits the doctrinal um, uh, context of the, of the whole New Testament in that either uh, some believe, and this is what I believe is the truth here. All right, that the eternal Spirit spoken of here is. Christ's eternal spirit. It's Him, all right? Uh, there's not really grammatical reason to believe that this is the Holy Spirit here, all right? Uh, it's literally just through spirit eternal is how it's literally worded, if you want to say, all right? But the eternal spirit is in reference to the Lord Jesus Himself, all right? His eternal deity, again, when you, when you think of that, you think, okay, well, this is kind of, but it's hard to grasp because we're talking about God-man, the God-man, all right? And we, we looked at the example of this last time, so I'm going to look at, do this again now. But in John chapter, go, everybody turn there for a second. John chapter 3, we'll get back to Hebrews here very momentarily. John chapter 3. Jesus is in a conversation with Nicodemus. Everybody's familiar with this passage of Scripture, all right? And in the conversation, all right, Jesus says these words to Nicodemus in verse 12. He says, if I have told you earthly things and you believe them not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? All right, Jesus was using some earthly things to illustrate spiritual truth to Nicodemus, such as being born again, all right? Uh, and he was talking about being born physically as well as then a person, it was of necessity for a person to be born spiritually as well, be born of the Spirit, all right? Uh, and and he, he talked about the, you know, you can't see the Spirit, uh, you can't see the wind, but you see the effect of the wind in the trees, and the same as that with the Spirit. You can't see the Spirit's working, you know, or you see results of it, but you can't see Him, and so on. Anyway, He says, if I've told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall, I, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And then notice verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. All right, so... Jesus is speaking these words. Where is he, physically speaking? He's standing right there with Nicodemus talking to him. But at the same time, he says, basically, I'm in heaven also. That's, that's kind of hard stuff to, again, to just grasp and so on. But, I mean, we're talking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's different than any other man, all right? But, so you see that example again, and I believe the same thing's true with what's being talked about in Hebrews. All right, Jesus was on the cross, but at the same time, somehow or another, the Spirit of Christ is in heaven doing this, carrying out the work of a high priest in heaven, offering his blood uh, there at the mercy seat in heaven, and and so on. Um, 
so, and there's, there's other reasons, okay, uh, in verse 14, the word himself. You see that says, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. The word himself here is a reflexive pronoun. Um, I'm not trying to get too technical here, but the point is a reflexive pronoun always refers back to the subject that's involved in the action. In other words, what a reflexive pronoun does, it, it puts the subject as he's not only the one doing the action, but he's the one that is in the results of the action. So in other words, when it says, who offered, let me find it here again in verse 14, who, through the eternal spirit, leave out that phrase for a second, who offered himself, all right? He offered himself. The idea is, okay, he's the one doing the offering, but he's also the object of it. He's the one who's being offered, but he's the one who's offering it. All right, so again, that points to Christ being the one here that's doing this and not the Holy Spirit, all right? Um, Throughout the Bible, and I basically mentioned this, but the context of securing, procuring the work of salvation is on the Son, not on the Holy Spirit. So while physically Jesus was enduring the cross, spiritually Christ was offering himself up to God. And I don't know any better way to say it than that, but, you know, but he was doing both at the same time. But he's able to do that because of who he is, okay? And so again, I, I believe that the total work and payment for securing salvation took place while Jesus was on the cross and was completed when he uttered the words in John 19, 13, it is finished. All right? Now, let me kind of pause here and, and say this is in contrast to some that have the view that Christ went ascended after he resurrected and offered his blood in heaven afterwards, all right? I don't believe that that's the case based on what the Bible teaches, what Hebrews teaches, all right? It sounds, and I know there's some songs and things. There's a song called The Last Blood that's really, I mean, and I was in a meeting one time, and I've never heard any more hooping and hollering and stuff over a song of that, and, but really the song is not doctrinally correct, I don't think. I mean, but, but the point being is, all that was necessary, when Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, all right, was what was necessary for salvation finished or not? I believe it was, all right? Um, consider also in, now that's in, John's gospel is the only one that records the words, it is finished, all right? No, no one of the Gospels contains all what are commonly called the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. No one of the Gospels contains all seven of them. But you compare them, put them together, there's seven times he said something while he was hanging on the cross. Okay, But in all three of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it records something that John doesn't, but something that happened in concurrence with the death of Christ as well. Can you think what that might be? It says that the veil of the temple rent in twain from top to bottom. What does that signify? That it's done and access is now there through Christ. Now, it's interesting, Matthew and Mark's account indicate that the veil rent 
after Christ died. You might say that he died, then the veil rent. Okay? Luke's account, the wording there, is a little bit different, and it puts it in the sense that it could have happened before he died. But regardless, you know, the point being is the veil of the temple that was standing in Jerusalem at that time rent. Now, again, you've, you've probably heard that talked about. I mean, that was not some, it wasn't a man-made thing. It wasn't, it wasn't a man-orchestrated event, okay, because that was a very thick thing. And, I mean, and it says rent from top to bottom. It would have been like 30 feet high, uh, you know. But the point is, again, it was just a statement by God. There's other things that happened as well, earthquake and, you know, graves opening and various things, all right. But um, it was a supernatural thing. That's the point. And it was a statement by God that it's done. There's no more need for that tabernacle, which that tent, okay, that, that, that temple in that case. No more need for this stuff because that work is done. Everything that it was picturing and so on was fulfilled in Christ. Right? Again, and I'm just reiterating to you, giving you a number of reasons, and I could go on and on about this, but uh, that the work of salvation, what was needed, what was required, which includes that priestly aspect of the work in heaven, was completed when Christ was on the cross and died on the cross. It all happens simultaneously. Um, you know. Anyway, we'll just leave that part at that. So the what of that then is, all right, Christ's blood was offered, sprinkled. He was offered up. His blood was offered, sprinkled. And that's the focus of these verses. Christ offered himself up to God, sprinkled his own blood on the heavenly mercy seat. And this, and only this, is what brought true satisfaction, appeasement to God concerning man's sins. Now, another interesting uh, verse on this, go back to Hebrews chapter 12 for a second. Hebrews chapter 12 <clears throat> Now, this is in a context, okay, but I just want to point something out here. The context is a little different context of what we're looking at in Hebrews 9. But he says in verse 22, But ye are come unto Mount Sion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. I've heard it described this way, that this is just describing some things that you're going to see in heaven. People that are going to be there, things and so on that are going to be there, all right? And, verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, which is part of the whole emphasis back in chapters 8, 9, and 10, right? The mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than that of Abel, the blood of sprinkling. There's going to be evidence of that or the blood of sprinkling in heaven, all right? And I, I think that the best way to look at that, understand that is, all right, the blood that he sprinkled, all right, on that mercy seat in heaven, it's still there. It's there, all right? It's permanent. 
and that. You ever thought about that on the Day of Atonement when the priest went into the tabernacle and sprinkled the blood? They never cleaned it up, all right? But he had to keep sprinkling blood every year, okay? But the blood that Christ sprinkled is forever there. It's permanent, all right? And it's never going to be washed away or it's never going to be you know, anything else sprinkled on it or whatever, all right? But it's there because of what he did. And that's, that's getting back to Hebrews chapter 9 is so much the emphasis in this chapter that he did that, he did it once, all right? So let's hurry back through, through chapter 9 now, all right? That brings us to verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that first covenant, they which are called might receive the promise of inheritance. In other words, his blood was and is effective, and he mediated the new covenant. He, he, he's the mediator, the, the one that, that enacted and brought everything together in that new covenant so that, that, that man can have that relationship to God that's spoken of in the new covenant. Now, the nation of Israel, uh, well, let me just say that every, every, back up for a second, every individual who puts faith in Christ, who comes to Christ in faith, enters into that covenant by faith, individually. One day, the nation of Israel, uh, he, Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 26, puts it this way, that all Israel will be saved in a day. Now, that takes place at the second coming of Christ, the remnant of Israel who make it through the tribulation and don't follow the Antichrist because many Israelites will follow the Antichrist, as will many Gentiles and so on. But the remnant of those uh, Israelites, Zechariah describes it, when they see the Messiah come back to earth, they're going to repent and they're going to believe on him. They will be saved, right? And they'll enter into, and I believe that's the, the prophetic, if you want to say, point of the new covenant that's spoken of. They're going to enter into that new covenant with God at that point, all right? But it's, it's now for individuals as they uh, come to Him in salvation, but Christ is the one who mediated that with His blood. All right, and then verses 16, and 16 through 23 kind of just keep reiterating a point here that in order to mediate this new covenant, he, Christ, had to die, had to shed his own blood to dedicate the covenant. And it talks about how that, you know, if you think about it from the standpoint of today, somebody's last will and testament, they can, they can put things down on paper and say, this is what, you know, I want to happen. This is what is to happen. But none of that happens until what happens? Until they die, all right? Then it goes into effect. And part of the emphasis in these verses is saying, you know, God made the promise about that new covenant way back, but it went into effect when the mediator of that covenant, the testator, Christ himself, when he died, all right? And so... Uh, in order for that to happen, he had to die and shed his own blood to dedicate the covenant. Look now, verse 16, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of no force, is of no force, uh, after, excuse me, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses 
uh, had spoken every precept to all the people. According to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined to you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood uh, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of these things in the heavens should be purified with these. So in other words, the earthly things, which were after the pattern, right, that was shown, which is somehow in heaven, all right, that was shown to Moses. He, he did patterned everything after that. All of that stuff had to be dedicated, uh, with consecrated with blood in order for all of that to go into effect. Right? It was necessary for that to happen, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. That better sacrifice was the Lord Jesus himself and his blood. All right? And then notice verse 24 through 28, you see the perfection and finality of Christ's atoning work, stressed here in verses 24 through 28. For Christ is not entered into the holy place, holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but the, the intended verb here is but, or you know, implied verb is he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, For then he must have suffered since the foundation. He must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All right. So you see an emphasis in these verses again that he did this one time. And it was one time for all time. One time for everybody. One, it's a one for all in any direction that you want to take that, I, I guess. Uh, but, I mean, in other words, everything about it was sufficient one time that it covers all the bases. There's no loopholes that, that you know, the devil's going to find to accuse you, if you're saved, before God, that you're somehow going to get left out. No. There's no legalities that aren't covered. Everything's covered in what Christ did in his one-time offering for sin. Everything, all right? And then verse 27 is the verse that we often use. And and, and there's obviously a principle here because the point is it's appealing to this principle to make the point that it's making. But the context of the verse is a little bit different than what we often use it. But verse 27, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Notice that's just the conditional part of the sentence. The sentence goes on, okay? So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. All right, so again, the whole emphasis of the latter part of this chapter is the once-for-all-time offering that Christ did and made. Once. I, I mean, you, in, in some ways of looking at it, you can't put any better description on it than that. 
because they had, there was never any satisfaction to what was done in the Old Testament. It was always having to be repeated and, and so on. And Christ, it's done. Once. A once for all time. Once for all people. Once, once for, ev- you know, for all, period. Christ sacrificed the, 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 the offering up of his blood aspect, shedding of his blood, sprinkling of his blood, the, the sacrifice that he was himself. I mean, all of that. There's so many aspects of it, okay? But all of that was totally sufficient to appease the wrath of God concerning man's sin. Now, there's another side of that that if we, if we think about it, should really be sobering to us because the point is that it took that for God to be satisfied. That's how serious sin is. And, and there's a lot of people in this world that just don't get, well, why did, you know, why did, why did God do what, that? That just sounds, you know, but they don't understand the seriousness of sin. That's the point. The seriousness of sin is what demanded the seriousness of that sacrifice. And again, when we, when we think about it in that sense, that should humble us. That should, that should be sobering to even consider. But you know, then you think, okay, John 3.16, for God so loved, that was his motivation, Because God is love, He desires to demonstrate that love. And He did that by, as that verse says, God so loved the world that He what? Gave His only begotten Son. I mean, that's His motivation in it because He loves. But He's holy and even though He loves and wants to show forgiveness to man and wants man to have a relationship with him, there's only one way that that can be possible, and it demanded what Christ did, what he endured and did, so that that could be possible. I mean, there's, there's a number of different a- angles, if you want to say, to think about that and look at, look at that, but that's, that's, how, that's what it's all about. It's super serious because sin is serious, but yet God's serious about having a relationship with man. And he wants to have a relationship with us. I mean, again, there's so many, so many things to think about in this, and that should make us thankful. I mean, that God desires to have a relationship with us so much that he gave what he gave. That's amazing. I mean, you know, and, and you've probably heard it talked about this way, you know, I, can you imagine giving your son or, you know, I mean, I can. Not for you, dirty, stinking people, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but you understand, I mean, that's what it would come down to from a human standpoint, you know, I mean, nobody's worth that, but Christ, the other aspect of that is Christ was willing. And from eternity past, he was willing because, I mean, you can think about that from a couple different aspects. He was willing because he's God and he loves, right? And wanted to demonstrate that. But also the son loves the father and wanted to see the father's desire 
come to pass in that as well. I mean, it, it just, it's amazing. But the depth of God, who He is, and what He's done is amazing when you think about the, just the depravity of us. But He offered in the real holy place, verse 24, He suffered, offered, appeared once. That's emphasized here several times, verse 25, 26. His suffering, His offering, and appearing actually put away sin, not just covered it temporarily. His priestly work is so sufficient that it's a one-and-done work. Verse 27, 28, and this, these verses, of course, also stress the eternality of the salvation that Christ secured for the true believer. This salvation is eternal, if you think about it in that angle as well. I mean, salvation doesn't have, never has to be repeated. Real salvation is eternal because of what it's based on. It's not about you and what you can do or what you do do. It's based on what Christ has done. End of story, period. You can, you can argue all the hypothetical uh, scenarios in that. What if a person does this? What if they do that? Well, the, the only answer to that is really a qu the question, is what Christ has done sufficient to take care of that? And obviously the answer to that is yes. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for just your word. Thank you for this, this wonderful, this awesome passage in the book of Hebrews that stresses that just the, the great sanctity of what Christ has done for us. And Lord, I pray that you'd help me. I pray that you'd help each of us to have a better love and appreciation to and for Him, and to and for you for what was done for us so that we could have a real salvation. Lord, I pray that you'd work in each of our hearts. And um, Lord, if perchance there's one here that's not truly saved, I pray that you would draw uh, him or her and convict and Bring them to the point of true salvation, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.